Welcome to the Blind Stigma Podcast with your hosts, Stacey Ann Buchanan and Dr. Natasha Williams. This podcast aims to provide a safe space that explores mental health within the Black community, breaks down the stigmas attached while taking back our narratives. Welcome to the Blind Stigma Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Natasha Williams. And I'm your host, second host, Stacey M. Buchanan. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. So, you know, always talk about how amazing our guests are and how many amazing episodes that we've had over time. But you know what? This episode is going to be an awesome one as well. Yes. Let me introduce you to Shelly Skinner. Shelly Skinner is a social entrepreneur, activist, and president and founder of Uplift Black. She speaks truth to power and candidly in hopes to empower and inspire others to join her in anti-oppressive practices with the goal of achieving social justice and true equity for all. That is power. Listen, listen, this woman is... (laughs) is just so incredible and and i personally know her we went to we went to college together um and and so to see her journey unfold and to hear her speak and her story is just truly truly amazing i saw there's so many quotes that i can give to this but i saw a quote um i saw a quote and it goes something like sis healing looks beautiful on you it's so simple. It's so simple, but, but you know, so profound. You know, yes. Because when you when you when healing is on you, you look good. You're you know, it's like when someone tells you like you, the the best compliment is like you look happier, and healing brings out this glow, and you're you're advocating for yourself, and it's like healing looks good on you, and we know that's not easy to do. No, absolutely, it's not, not easy to do. Oh, but so. I think that's the perfect gem to drop for this episode. So yes. with that. Let's get into it. Let's go. Hi. Hey, Natasha. Hi, Stacey Ann. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm excited. I am a big fan. I do follow you on Spotify. Oh, (laughs) thank you. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. So a little backstory. A little backstory. Me and Shelly, we went to college together. Oh, okay. Yeah, years ago with George Brown. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, we were were one of the few black girls just sticking it through. (laughs) Just sticking it through in theater in downtown Toronto, yes. and I mean, I think we need a whole podcast just to talk about oh, that. Right, right. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Babies. Trying to get make you make it in the in an industry that did not want to support our blackness. Mm. Yes. Right. Oh Lord, so much stories. Oh, that. I could only imagine. I can only yeah. imagine. So why don't we dive right in? So what mm-hmm. we want to do is start by I want to start by asking you to tell us your story, your journey with mental health. Absolutely. I mean, first I'll just tell you a little bit about me. Yes. So I'm, yeah, so I'm an activist and a social entrepreneur, and I'm the president and founder of Uplift Black. Um, We're the very first social service agency, I like to call a social impact agency, really, Mm. in Simcoe County, working to uplift Black lives in our community. And, you know, my life has literally brought me to this work. I say my life work is my is my life, period. Like it, it is why I do what I do. 
Um, and really, I what I try to do is just speak, you know, truth to power and candidly and hope to empower other people uh, to join me in like anti-oppressive practices and, you know, working through stigmas and figuring out how do we move forward in our lives uh, and, you know, impact some real change in our communities so that regardless of what we look like, you know, our genders, of our sexualities, of our abilities, like we can just live holistically and peacefully um, you know, and that's really what I, I, I want to do. And that's because my life has not been peaceful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it has not been holistic or healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was because I just, I grew up in a household where they just didn't understand how to, um, teach me how to love myself in the proper way. Right. Um, I was, you know, first generation Canadian. Yeah. I, uh, my parents were born and raised in Trinidad. Okay. And, you know, the, the thing is, my, my mom speaks to even the relationship that she formed with um, my father coming from, you know, her trying to commit suicide and um, being on a bus and, you know, a bus driver finding her at, at the end of his shift and having to take her to the hospital um, because she just couldn't, she didn't know how to exist in this world in Toronto as, uh, you know, a new young black woman. Um, all the discrimination and the stigma she felt. Um, she thought she was coming to this country to live a better life and than the one that she had lived in her small community in Trinidad. Mm-hmm. And the truth was it was hard. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't really any support services for um, new immigrants and for young Black women coming you know, to Canada during the West Indian, you know, domestic scheme period yes. where they were, yeah, where we were, we were brought here to basically, you know, work in the homes of uh, privileged white folks, um, you know, in order to, uh, to, to come to Canada and live a better life. Exactly. And, you know, it wasn't really her calling and it really, and she, and she struggled with that. And when things got too tough, you know, she just thought her only choice was to, to, to give up. And that was literally the story that was told to us at a really young age, right. that it was okay to give up, mm-hmm. that it was that that things are really tough and that we're going to have to fight through this. But we weren't given the tools on how what or even really explained what that meant. And I found and I find out now years and years later that my mom was bipolar. Oh, so okay. yeah, was she actually yeah, and, was she actually diagnosed or not at the time? I was thinking she didn't, so. Not at not back not, in those days. Not at the time. Not at the time. Um. So you know, and she's bipolar, and we're not really sure if it's bipolar two. Um. I'm, but I know that recently I've been diagnosed bipolar two. But I'll, I'll get to that story. So basically, what happened was we grew up in a home where nobody talked about mental health. That's right. You know. All we talked about was, you know, the daily grind of what we needed to do to succeed and that things were going to be harder for us because we were black and that we had to suck it up because (laughs) this is just the life of the, of, of living while black. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So we needed to just be involved in just hitting the, you know, hitting the pavement and just not worrying about how tired you were, not asking for help. Right. Unless you're asking, you know, like, you know, people in your home, you don't tell people your business. 
If you're struggling at home, you don't tell people your business. So there was no talking to a doctor or therapist or anybody. You do not. I mean, I'll never forget every Jamaica, Jamaican home I went into. They had that sign, what you see here, don't leave here. Yes. I don't even know what they mean. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, they wanted to remind you that you do not talk business when you leave this house. What so happens here stays here, right? And that was protection. That was protection from judgment, right? Mm-hmm. It's how we succeeded. But the truth is, is that I saw a lot of the back and forth with my mom, you know, just, you know, the extreme highs of just being like ready to take on the world. And then the extreme lows of can't get out of bed. You know, you just can't, you know, she couldn't get out of bed. It only it got worse when she started to drink. She was actually never a drinker. My father was an alcoholic. Okay. Um, which most men, you know, men are to deal with their, you know, pains and, and mm-hmm. the fact that they're not supposed to be able to speak about their, you know, their pain. And he just, his sorrows of just living while black, he just drowned it with alcohol. Okay. And my mom took on extra work and did whatever she had to do to, um, you know, to deal with his alcoholism. And so she worked six days a week. So she wasn't around a lot. And, you know, when she did come home, she was exhausted. So, you know, to her, it was just, you know, I was just trying to get through. I was, she was just trying to get through. When she was diagnosed um, with, uh, you know, as I started getting older, you start going through menopause, you know, she realized that they were some, they felt some cysts, they needed to remove it. Um, they did a full hysterectomy and things just changed. Her whole hormonal cycle just changed. And it actually is what prompted her to start seeing the doctor more often. Oh, once she had the, and, once she had the hysterectomy. Yeah, once she had the diagnosis, because now the doctor's like, we need to talk. Okay. And my, and my doctor had said, you know, that, that my, our family doctor had told my mom that she was manic depressive, which is like the worst right. <laughs> thing you can mm-hmm. call it. Like, I'm so glad they don't call it manic Yeah, anymore. I know. They've changed the terminology. But, right? Mm-hmm. Right? But so my mom was like, what is this you're telling me I am? I'm just, you know, I'm sitting here just trying to, like, make do, working six days a week, trying to raise my family, and you're trying to tell me that it's something other than the fact that I'm just tired and that I need a little bit more assistance and then it's it's hard to live in a world where you work in paycheck to paycheck. And the doctor's like, yeah, <laughs> I'm telling you that this is, that you may have to be on medication for your whole life to deal with this. So all she, she literally went home and was like, no, no, not gonna, she ignored it completely she wasn't taking this on she had other things to deal with than to listen to this white doctor tell her that you know how could this white doctor know what she how, what her life experience was like right? right how could she even truly understand what her her experience was like so she didn't t- even take it seriously and i would hear you know, conversations around the home. She wasn't, she would never talk to me directly about the things that would happen. She'd be talking to, you know, my uncle on the phone or she'd be talking to family members, you know, or my dad. And I would just kind of bits and pieces hear the conversation. And that's really hard when you're a young adolescent trying to grow up and trying to figure out the world, right? Because you're not hearing the whole conversation. You're just hearing the pieces and you're trying to figure out like, what is wrong with my mom? You know, I remember that like she gets into these really, really low places. And sometimes when she would get in really, really low places and she'd be drinking, she would talk about suicide a lot. And I remember hearing about 
this this being something that she had attempted before. So the fear would just sit in sit inside of me, like what is going to happen, right? And I remember the first time I lost consciousness, and it was the day that my mom had tried to swallow a bunch of pills. Oh my goodness! And we had found her, and she had told us that she did this. And my my sister was calling the ambulance, and everybody was freaking out in the home. And I just I don't know what happened. All I remember is that I literally came to and I was in the front of my lawn in my house, like in, in front of my house, and I was screaming. And I just, I didn't know. I don't remember getting there. Oh, wow. Okay. I don't remember ever getting to that moment. And it was the first time that I, like, I had blacked out. Right. Right? Where I'd lost time and I didn't really truly understand um, what that was and what that meant. So just so, have, so just so that yeah. our, just so that our listeners understand, it it sounds like you went from, you know, trying to tend to your mother to being in the front lawn. So you like literally, so yeah. there's a, there's a gap there in terms of just not knowing like, like a, a space of time where you just don't know what happened in between that that those two points. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah, I just wanted to give the listeners some context just to to understand that you know this is a this is a trauma response. Wow. Yeah. You know, it's an absolute trauma response. Everyone has different trauma responses, you know, depending. Yeah. But um, I would aim to say, and I mean, I would I would ask for you to continue your story. But the first thing that's yeah. coming to mind for me is I'm wondering if and I don't I don't know if if, if professionals have um, described what happened. But the first thing that comes to mind for me is what we call a dissociative fugue. Mm-hmm. So it's basically, it's literally a trauma response in which you lose gaps in time. Wow. Yeah. Um, you, you know, to go from, you know, to go from tending to your mother to being in the front lawn and not understanding what's going on yeah. in between, literally, it's it's almost like the body shutting off. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, literally your body, mm-hmm. your brain. It's a protection. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. So I know that mm-hmm. in, in, in psychological terms, we do that. We call it a fugue or a dissociative fugue. Um, and that's in response to, I just need to get away. Wow. And literally yeah. your body does that so that you can have that escape moment. So absolutely. I'm, I absolutely. just wanted to give, I just wanted to give some yeah. of our, um, some of our listeners a little bit of context as well. I love just, it. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. You're welcome. But please, like yeah. after, after that occurred, what, what happened next? Um, the, the ambulance came, um, they took her away. I felt if I remember even remembering this correctly, because I mean, there's it's not like something that we talk about on, on a regular basis right. to know if I'm even recalling the story as well. Um, and you know, she would come back and she would just, you know, she would not be drinking anymore. She would apologize for what happened and we would just go on. And it became like just normal for there to be situations. And it was usually it like it, it always started with my dad got drunk, they got in a fight and then this happened right. and, you know, th- and, and things would get rough. Till, so there became a point where I just couldn't be home anymore. So at a young age, um, I started to look for a place. I was just graduating, and I was like, I just need to be on. I can't be in this home. Like, I need to separate myself from it. Um, so, you know, I was already put into a very young age of being put in a position where I didn't have the means to take care of myself, but I needed to separate myself for my own health. 
the problem is I didn't ha- know where to go for help. Like I didn't truly even understand it. I just thought to myself that, that removing myself from that situation was going to be enough, right? Not seeking any kind of therapy or anything for myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think I've, anybody ever asked me even being called to the home and that being something I know that like these days it's very different. Like if something tragic like that will happen, like they're going to send CAS to your house to be like, (laughs) what is happening? You need to make sure these kids are are, are getting, you know, um, some sort of therapy or something. So it actually is very, like it is very different, but at the time, none of that happened. Nobody checked in on, on, on us to see how we were doing. So we just, me and my sister, we just kind of went on. My sister was very, um, she was older than me. And so she was, uh, she wasn't really home as often. She was studying to be a police officer. She was very much wrapped up in that um, part of her life. So she wasn't, she, she kind of separated herself very, very much. And even when she came home, like when we got the calls, she was very much a police officer in the situation. Yes. Like, you know, like she had the notepad you can't, out. Yeah, okay, you can't, what can't happened, turn it off. Right. <laughs> <laughs> she right. thought like you know but I um, I think that that was also her coping mechanism thank you I was just like say the same thing yes yes it was just the facts right like let's get to the facts how do we fix this and you know and then we would once again go in our ways but I you know I started suffering from depression at a, a really young age and not really knowing what that was and it wasn't until I moved out and I started like I just had no like I just had no interest in in things that I used to have interest in. Okay. I, you know, I like I had a partner at the time when we lived together and it was just work and home. And this is like 1920. This is the time you're supposed to be like out living your life. <laughs> right. Mm. Um, I ended up getting pregnant and um, it actually happened twice, uh, you know, with my partner at the time. And, I had a mis- at miscarriage both times and the doctor told, I was really, really depressed after the second time. And the doctor told me that they thought I had postpartum depression. So I was like, okay, I started reading up a lot about postpartum depression. And I, like, even though you didn't have like actually conceived the child, you, oh, you know, your body is, your body is still going through all the, you know, the, <laughs> the chemical changes. Right. And, yeah, so you can still experience postpartum de- depression without actually having the baby to take care of. Oh. So that was just like really like, because I had also lost that baby at five months. So oh, that wow. was okay. yeah. So it, my my body had really started to lactate and all that stuff at that time. So I was really struggling with with, with um, you know my mental health at that time and with being being told that this is the condition is postpartum depression. I just assumed that that's what it was right. and I didn't. And I once again, didn't look into it further at this time. I, my, my mom's brother started to show signs of depression as well. Um, he had gone through some traumatic experiences um, and um, he stopped working at a job that he was working. And then all of a sudden he just stopped. He couldn't like get a job anymore. He couldn't, he didn't have any interest. And this was somebody who was winning top awards in his field wow. so this was so he was so noticing very, that kind strong, of change right oh my yes goodness. it was a drastic change all of a sudden he was like you know refusing to to apply for other jobs and, and he'd gotten laid off at one job and i know so it was like that was a, a moment um but then he just it, it was years and years and he couldn't break through this 
Um, so between you know, my mom's alcoholism and her depression, taking her into rehab, you know, dealing with my uncle, I had no time to think about what I was feeling or going through. So you put yourself in the back and burner, right? Because put it- myself in the back burner. And I, I mean, honestly, I I didn't even want to think that maybe it was something that I needed to look into too. Right. Like this, that this is something that isn't an isolated incident, right? right. That you know, like bad shit happened to people. Sorry if I'm not supposed to stir here. Okay. No, it's okay. <laughs> but, That's all right. This but, is a, but, this know, is a like, safe space. In, <laughs> yeah. The inability to be able to work through those moments is something that you need to look into, right? For sure. If if it's so like if if it's so you know debilitating that you can't even get out of bed. You know, that you're closing the blinds to your life. You need to start looking at, at to, to what that answer could be. That's right. It ended, yeah, it ended up being that, you know, my uncle never recovered and mm-hmm. ended up passing from that experience, you know, mm-hmm. falling down the stairs, breaking his neck. Everybody oh, says it was alcohol. No. We're not sure if that was the case or something more. Okay. You know, it, it so it became a lot of just juggling. Is this something that's running in the family? Like, is you know, are, is it just our experiences that are making life hard, or is there something more? Right. And that's the hard part when you're black. Thank you. And you live, and you live because you don't know if it's just the shitty shit, the stuff that's happening to me, yeah. or is it something different? Is it something layered, mm-hmm. right? That we need to look into. And it really was until I started getting older and having children myself and, you know, experiencing more blackouts, um, you know, experiencing more harm and making really bad choices, mm-hmm. choices that were harmful to me. When I say bad, I mean, they harmed me. Oh dear. Right. Yeah. So I don't like, I don't like to say bad or good because what is bad and good? I mean, truly like it was harmful to me, but there were harmful mm-hmm. choices. Right. Right. Of course. Yeah. And it, it made me realize that they really needed to start looking into why I was making these choices and why I was looking at easy fixes instead of long-term solutions to the problem. Well, you know, what's what's also fascinating as well is, is that, I mean, even with that kind of dichotomy where you're talking about, you know, you know, the easy fixes versus the long-term solutions as human beings, we, a lot of times we want to look for how can we get our comfort as quickly as possible? I've I've been suffering for a long period of time this is going to give me some kind of ease and some kind of release, even if it's in the short term versus the the hard work that has to be done over the longer period of time to actually to actually repair. So, you know, sometimes it's easier for lack of a better way of saying it to to go Mm -hmm. with the easier solution, because it's like if I take this route, I'm going to get ease right now. You know, Absolutely. not necessarily mm-hmm. looking at the long term effects. So, I mean, I just wanted to, to add that in there because I it's a choice that I think a lot of people struggle with. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, especially when you're coming to a crossroads and, you know, wanting to truly understand, well, what is it that's going on with me? And what do I need to do to address it? So I, I appreciate that you've, you're mentioning that crossroads that I find that a lot of us um, are at and especially us in the black community, um, you know, trying to really figure out, you know, is this something that, you know, we can just, you know, fix with a little tutu something? Or is this going to yeah. take some longer, this yeah. is going to take some longer term work. So mm-hmm. I, I definitely appreciate that you've, that, that you've mentioned that crossroad. Yeah, there was, there was moments, and I mean, Stacey, I might not even rec- uh, recall this, but um, 
my depression affected major parts of my life, including continuing in the program that I was in with, with Stacey. And I dropped out halfway through because of my depression, because I just couldn't get up and get out of bed uh, to get to school. I lived in, you know, outside of the city and it was, oh. it was quite the trek to get to um, the school in Toronto. Yeah. And I, you know, I just couldn't, I just, there were days that I just couldn't do it. And I hated not showing up and being my best. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, and I just didn't, wasn't able to do it all the time. Mm -hmm. And I found that that, that became a pattern for me, like not really following through on things, Okay. Okay. you know, okay. starting something, knowing, you know, knowing that it was really passionate and I loved it, but just, you know, it's especially like, I almost felt like it was self sabotage sometimes. Like if I really, really wanted it even more <laughs> than anything mm -hmm. else, it was all the more reason for me to shut the door to it. Understood. Yes. Understood. You know, like I was, you know, the more I needed it, the more, I, you know, it, it to work for me, the easier it was for me to just say, absolutely, I don't deserve this. Okay. Okay. Right. So I, to get into that frame. Yeah. yeah. So I guess what, you know, you know, hearing all of this and hearing all of your struggles, I guess what I want to know is how were you able to then address, like, how were you able to get to the point to either, you know, to start addressing a lot of these issues that you've noticed that has, that you've been struggling with for such a long period of time? How did you address the situation? Um, honestly, it was from being in an abusive relationship a very, very toxic, abusive relationship and having to move into a shelter and then being brought into the, um, you know, the domestic violence community and being forced to speak about some shit. Because oh, <laughs> oh, now right. I'm sitting here. Yeah, because now I'm sitting here. I've got two kids who are like seven, seven and nine. Um, I'm in a shelter and... I needed to explain how I got there. Right. <laughs> and yeah. I'm sitting with these counselors, these these incredible women who have literally been there doing this work for years and years and they understand women's um, health and, and mental health and and the struggle and they know how to talk to you <laughs> and they know mm, how to right. bring and so it was the first time I actually sat down with an actual like counselor right you know you know and spoke about what was going and then they would they start to say, asking you questions and you were like i didn't even think about that like you know <laughs> yep, yep. You're, you're, in there, you know, you're in the room. that's that's what we do we make those connections <laughs> yeah. right yeah. and the connections that you wouldn't necessarily make we would make those connections you're like wait this plus yeah. this equals wait a minute <laughs> wait a minute yeah right? yeah yeah and i started to realize that like i had a pattern of um, of believing that I didn't deserve better. Mm, wow. Right. Yeah. yeah. That I didn't, and that I didn't deserve to even be here. And like, so it felt like, and that's what it felt like. Um, mm. and, and then the next moment, cause even that wasn't enough. Cause you know that like, when you get to that point, it's like the beginning of your journey. That's right. Right. When you start to open up, there's still so much that happens there, but it was a moment when of, moving out of the shelter and then moving into my apartment and I looked at my kids and I felt like a complete failure oh, as a parent. And, um, you know, my son in particular being a young black boy, um, had been harassed consistently in school 
and that and therefore it in turn became constant calls home from school about Lucius's behavior, even though nobody else had complained about Lucius's behavior. His friends, parents would say he was the best, well-behaved kid at the birthday party. He's so loving. He's so kind. Yet all of a sudden he's in school and he's a problem. So, um, you know, I was, I was sitting here, you know, the teachers, the whole school knew that my family had just moved out of a shelter, spent the entire summer in a shelter. And I was still getting harassing phone calls about my son's behavior. And I'm like, maybe he's just struggling right now. (laughs) You know, like where is the, where is the compassion and Mm -hmm. empathy for these kids and their, and their struggles and their lives. Right. And I'm literally alone, you know, and I'm, so I'm sitting here and then in this home and I just feel like the phone had just rang and was just in trouble again. And, you know, the kids were arguing and I just, blacked out oh, dear. Okay. and I woke up driving my vehicle not knowing where I was oh my word and wow. telling my and telling my friends that I had just swallowed a bunch of pills regretted it tried to dispel it and then got in my car and drove and that's the story that got told to me afterwards oh, like my from my oh, friends my who I had called from the doctors when I when they took me to the hospital it was another major blackout moment for me and in that moment the choice was to not live anymore and to leave those two babies on their own and that was not okay and I knew that I could not allow this to happen anymore that I had to start fighting for me because because I've been trying to fight for them up until this point for, because I didn't believe that I deserved to, to, to be fought over. Anything. To fight. Right. Preach. Oh, yes. my word. So at that point, I had thought, I can only fight. I, you know, I'm fighting for them. I got to make sure that they have food. I got to make sure they got a home. I got to make sure everything for the kids. I didn't even worry about what I needed right. mm-hmm. at that point. You know, I was just trying to just survive. Mm-hmm. So at that moment, I, and I remember, like, I was, like, pumped to, like, you know, get started and then the CAS agent showed up at the hospital and said said that they're going to have to start making home visits. Wow. So talk about feeling crappy oh, already. Oh, like goodness. you're already this is at now your adding, lowest. Of course. Oh my word. <laughs> you're at you're at your lowest, and then they they want to start examining every part of your life. Yeah. So you know what happened? I started to like think about like what my family had said. Don't tell people your business. They're going to use it against you. Don't tell people about your mental health. So for point, so when they offered for me to start a day program, I was like, what is that going to mean? Right. Is, are people going to, are CS now going to think that I'm unfit to, to be a parent to these kids? Am I going to lose my children? You got, you like I was in mode. panic. I was in panic. So I didn't accept the day program right away. And then about a month later, I called back and I was like, I realized, I'm like, Shelby, you have to do something. you got to do something, right? This is bad. So I called back and they're like, oh, you didn't accept the program? Okay, well, we can put you on a waiting list for a year. Oh, my goodness, yes. To see a psychiatrist. Uh, So, I mean, they didn't tell you it was a year at the time. They told you they'd put you on a waiting list. Right? right so you're like i'm like okay i gotta speak to somebody i need professional you know assistance here so now they've got me on this waiting list so through that whole time i was just like 
Googling <laughs> mental health. Yeah, you like, know, like, I need help. Let me, I started, let me do my own thing now, right? Following, you know, Stacey Ann started speaking. I'm like, Stacey Ann, speak. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, cause it resonated with me. Right. Like, I was like, yes, this is my story. This is the shame that I refuse yes. to, you know, that, that, that my family didn't want to speak about. So, you know, and we needed to, so we could heal together. Oh. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, we needed to speak about all of this stuff. So, you know, finally I get into the, you know, I, it's over a year now and I'm excited. I am pumped to go and get some help. I finally yes. got called. Right. So I'm sitting in the, I'm at the hospital in, in my community and I'm sitting down and this, a uh, man walks in and he's like, he says my name. I'm in this room with other people, right? Bright lights, you know, the hospital stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and this man walks in and he's and he, he's holding a chart and he goes, Shelby Skinner. And I'm like, yep, yeah. he's got his glasses and he's looking at the paper. I'm like, that's me. And he, he didn't, didn't look up at me. He just continued looking at me. He said, okay, come with me. And he's still not looking at me. And he turned around and he walked ahead of me, five steps ahead of me each time. And made me follow him to an author. And so he sat, sits down on his desk and he has not yet taken one look at me. Oh, my gosh. Wow. He sits at the desk and he says, um, all right, so um, tell me why you're here. He hasn't looked at me. So I'm sitting there. I am in this cold desk, like the office. I, you know, like I feel so uncomfortable. I'm just about, you know, I've waited over a year for this. And this person hasn't had the audacity. Like, I work in service, okay? Right, right. So I notice these things, right? Do the people look at you? Do they pay? Do they, you know, do they acknowledge your presence standing there? I also understand this as a Black person because it happens to us consistently. Mm-hmm. Right. That where I'm standing here, do you see me? <laughs> right. I exist in this space. So you recognize it. You know it when, when it happens. So I'm sitting there, and he didn't look, and he said, okay, so he asked me to t- tell him what was going on. So I started to like this. I've been waiting a year. So now it's like two, three years of stuff that I've been trying to, I need to get out. Right? right. So I'm out and I'm talking to him. He's like, yep, yep, yep. Okay. Oh, well, um, you know, he'll ask me a couple of just quest- like leading questions. Right. And then he's like, okay. Um, so take this, um, this prescription. And then you take this for, for your sleeping and, um, you know, follow up with your doctor. I said, what? Wow. And I, I'm oh like, gosh. I said, is that it? He's like, yeah, follow up with your doctor. I could not believe it. Oh I'd waited a year for a man to not even look me in the face, write me a prescription to t- and tell me to follow up with my doctor. Oh, and gosh. I thought I was being saved. <laughs> that, oh. that day. I thought that that was, you know, my moment. You know, where I was going to be able to finally get some healing and get some help. And he told me that it was, I'm just depressed and I need to sleep. Wow. Yeah. So he he basically said that the antidepressant depressant that I was on was not strong enough. So So he wrote me a higher dosage of antidepressant and then he wrote me another pill for sleep, uh, for sleeping. After I told him I take, I took a bottle of sleeping pills to try to commit suicide. (laughs) Wow. So, and he didn't even give me any guidance. He didn't even say, "Hey, don't take this bottle." Yeah, like, <laughs> like, he didn't say like, anything just, to just me. Just follow up with your family. Mm-hmm. And see, thank and thank you for telling us, telling us and, and our listeners this story because 
it's in this um, in this dynamic that I find that we as black individuals or black community do not reach out to the health to mental exactly. health community yeah. because we a, are not heard, we're not validated, and then we're yep. just seen as a commodity, mm-hmm. you know? Absolutely. So being, being, having these type of experiences push us even further away further from away. even getting the help that we need. Absolutely. So Absolutely. in the midst of all of this and all of these negative experiences, mm-hmm. can I ask sort of, where are you where are you now so i mean it it sounds like again you've gone through so much and a lot of negative experiences where are you now i'm at a place where i've finally been heard and Ah. it's it's from it's from self-advocating to be honest it's been it's from it's from not giving up on myself good it's Mm -hmm. from you know and the thing is is that it hasn't been the easiest road Right. So right. some could say that I'm lucky that I'm still here today. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you know, I what I haven't spoken about is that I am a black queer woman. And so I when I look at, you know, so many incredible black queer activists out there, you know, their, their story of perseverance is what keeps me going. Yes. And they, right? they're and owning, the, owning yeah. their space, owning their space yeah. and living in it. Absolutely. Oh, Absolutely. And it's an identity that I've always, you know, knew who I was, but it was an identity that for a long time, I, you know, it just wasn't, a, a, you know, it wasn't anything. That, it was the one thing that I knew was true, even if nothing else was, right. you know, so it was, it, it's identity that, I, that I've held on to. And it really is so important to me to, to be queer and to, uh, you know, speak of, of, the beauty that is all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it is, it has been through advocating and listening to people, uh, you know, listening to podcasts like the Blythe Stingla and mm-hmm. understanding that there are people out there who will understand. So from, I started to say, no, this is not working. I'm going to try a new doctor. I'm going to try a new psych. I, I'm gonna, I, I want you to hook me up with a psychiatrist that's who's going to actually it. listen to me. Yes, right. So it, it finally got to a point where like, I, so I sat down and literally this was this year this year (laughs) that I finally, you know, yeah. So this is like a lifetime. I'm 40 years, this, uh, you know, old now. And young, young Shelly. Yeah. I just turned 40 years young. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm, and I'm sitting there with with my, on a virtual call, not even in person because we're living in the virtual world. And this doctor finally looked at me. And listen to me and said, wow. Oh, and then how is it when you do this? And okay, so when you're working, what is it like when you, you know, like, when do you get your your best work done? And did it like, but just really real. I'm like, yeah, they're like, oh, (laughs) so Shelly, the reason why this medicine isn't working for you is because I don't think you're depressed. I think you're bipolar. Oh, wow. Wow. Actually, actually, I know you are. <laughs> That's what she said to me. Oh She's like, so the medicine you're on is not the right medicine for you. Oh my goodness, you're speaking. Oh my goodness. You're speaking truth to power because I know, like, as a yeah. as a as a cl- as a clinical psychologist, but also understanding the research. Um, and just to let our listeners know, bipolar mm-hmm. a lot of times it takes at least 
five years or more to actually get the diagnosis right. Because yeah. what usually happens is that they'll diagnose a depression first and then prescribe yeah. antidepressant medication, which will not work because it doesn't address the mania. Mm -hmm. um, yes. So you end yes. up being misdiagnosed, misprescribed, and it's yeah. only after several bad attempts that yes. usually, you know, you get the diagnosis right. But it's one of those um, mental health issues or mental illnesses that um, gets misdiagnosed so often for, for a variety, and that's for a variety of reasons. Yeah. Yeah. And she reasons. said to me that I'm bipolar two, which means it's even harder to diagnose yes. because of the, um, the mania isn't as severe. That's right. Yes. That's right. Right. So yeah. it might, you, you might, so like, so what I, I'm like, hmm. so I started realizing like, you know, I would have a good six months of really like active work. Like I'm, I'm working well, I'm producing so much right. <laughs> like people people are giving me awards and i'm like i don't even know what's happening i'm, I'm everywhere and then you don't see me yep. you don't hear the me crash. i am i have the crash comes right mm. and in that crash it is because you're so used you, you know what you can do you know what you can do when you're on your your high right <laughs> you know what you can accomplish yes you mm -hmm. feel like you are the worst like you can't do anything now like because you're not balanced that's right so you think that you're supposed to always be like this running on the high right so when you're not running on that high at that level that's not sustainable you think you're a failure that's it. Mm. Yeah. so that but then you fall into this deep 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 depression and you think that i can't finish the job why did they even hire me mm. <laughs> what were they thinking they're exactly what so and so said. I'm exactly what so and so said about me. I must truly be unworthy. Right. 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 So you fall into this pattern. So the balance is so hard to deal with. Understood. Right. Yeah. Those are the imbalance, I should say. Right. Yeah. Right. Shelly, as we yeah. as we move forward on that, um, how how do you think we can address the stigmas of mental health in the black community? <sighs> we have to allow ourselves to not fit into this mold of perfection that cannot exist and that we cannot sustain. It is, it was not, you know, perfection is not even what was meant for us because it wasn't designed by us. Ha, ha, <laughs> right? Thank you. Thank you. you know, Thank it wasn't you. designed by us. So we will never be able to fit the mold. That's it. Mm -hmm. Right. It. So we will constantly be, uh, you know, striving to be something that we are not. And living in that place is the most unhealthy place mm -hmm. when you sit there and you can't just love yourself for who you are. That's right. I mean, I really, truly believe sometimes I used to think, I don't even know if I need to fix the bipolar uh, bipolar. I need to fix the world so they can leave me the hell alone. You know what I mean? Yeah. 100%. Like, you know, is the problem me or is like and what is, you know, and what are these, you know, these um generational um, you know, experiences that we that we have from our families that get passed down to us. What are they anyway? Thank you. It's mm. trauma. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. trauma. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Yep, right? I hear you. It I becomes the norm. It becomes a culture. You know, that's mm -hmm. our culture. And it's, we're, mm -hmm. we're yes, living through yep. so it, much trauma. Yep, transcending trauma from generation to generation. Absolutely. It's a, yeah, and that's exactly what I remember. It, just recently, my mom said to me, 
because she she's my biggest advocate like she is and she is really is the most beautiful person on the planet and i love her to death and i think when i think about all of her struggles especially as a grown person today like you know and just understanding how hard it was um and still not even truly understanding how hard it would have been to be a new immigrant in a country in the 70s in the 60s and 70s Mm -hmm. right so i really could not even understand that that you know what that's like but she said to me in a conversation she said when i was trying a new medication and she said how does it feel and in that moment I realized that she just wanted to know what it felt like to just feel okay with themselves. Yeah. Wow. Oh, oh wow. Yeah. Wow. Oh Shelly, yeah. <laughs> I we're we're almost at the end of the podcast and yeah. and, mm-hmm. and this is the part that I like to call the fun question. I mean okay. all, our, mm-hmm. all our questions are fun, but you know, this is this is yeah. the fun question. <laughs> and so uh, I'm gonna tell you how this uh, came about. So one day I was at the water cooler and I noticed um, someone had put a sign that said, take one thing for your mental health. And you know, back in the day when people were like babysitters or a mechanic and they'll put their number down and cut it into little strips so you can just rip it off. It was something like yeah. that and you could rip off a word, you know? And so I've incorporated it into the podcast and I, and I wanted to know what is one word that you'd say that can sum up your mental health journey? Nourishment. Oh my gosh. Oh. Wow. Wow. Okay. And you know what? I'm just going to ask you to, I know, I know we're, we're, we're close to out of time, but can you give a little bit of context as to why you chose that word? Yeah, (laughs) because it's about feeding your soul, Mm. right? It's about feeding your, your desires and your passions. It's about caring for you. When I think of nourishment, I think about I can't feed my baby unless I'm fed myself first, right? Like, yes. I, yes. you know, it is it is yes. that, you know, it's, it's, it's that on the plane, put the mask on yourself before you put it on That's yourself, right? right. Like so to me, it is just, and not being afraid of what you need, <laughs> right? Mm. And not being afraid to ask for what you need, whether yes. that be like, I'm, I, you know, I, I need a paycheck. That's going to help sustain the life that I need to live. That's right. So I'm going to go out there and I'm going to ask for that. Right. Mm-hmm. I need to have a certain number of days off and time off to in between certain projects, because I know that as somebody who's bipolar, who can go through highs and lows, I need to give myself that time to experience the possible low that can come from, from coming down from a high of an event or something that I've planned or a yes. production. Now, instead of that being a problem, it's just what I need. That's it. That's it. <laughs> you know, so it's just recognizing what I need and not being afraid to put it in the calendar. If that means block enough time so that this is some time for me. Right. Mm-hmm. Or if it means just, you know, that, you know, setting expectations, boundaries, yes. <laughs> right. Yes. Boundaries are huge. Getting off social media, <laughs> you know, right. you know, right. at least to at least certain platforms. Like I'm all about like, you know, if you can't get up all, all platforms, get only keep one. Yeah, true, only true. keep yeah. one. And you don't manage need to that. have four or yeah, five, and it. manage that, right? Mm-hmm. Like I know with business, it can be a lot harder, but then you need to separate your business from your personal. That's right. Meaning yes. that if you're working business, then you work business social on social on those hours that you're working. That's right. Absolutely. And you don't jump on there off those hours. Right. So it's you know, there's so many things about nourishment to me that just feels like just it's just about feeding the soul. Uh. So I have to just say, 
Thank you. My yes, goodness. Thank you. Um, <laughs> you have blessed us with your time, with your energy, you just, just with your presence. And I have to say thank you. We appreciate you. Sister, we see you as well. Thank you. Um, you know, you're doing amazing work. You're also blessing others, not with just you know, what you've shared with us. And your You've reached the end of another episode of the Blind Stigma Podcast with your hosts, Stacey Ann Buchanan and Dr. Natasha Williams. Thank you for tuning in. If you're a first-time listener and you like the show, then please subscribe, rate, and review us on all the major podcast platforms. Don't forget to connect with us on social media at The Blind Stigma and join the conversation. Find out more about each guest and help us to change the stigma while taking back our narratives. This podcast is produced by What's Up Toronto and Stacey Ann Buchanan Productions.